Hello everyone. Uh, welcome to the second voice note for the month of February. Uh, as you know, in this month in Kashmiri Circle, we are reading on art and culture. In particular, for uh, this uh, last meeting, we are going to be discussing M. Madhav Prasad. Uh, this is your convener, and joining me is um, member of the commissariat and head of the um, information media etc bureau um, um, whom you all know as dhoop now before uh, we go into the readings i think it is important to know from what scholarly tradition is m Prasad talking from because otherwise his uh, writing can be a bit dense and inaccessible to a lot of people so why don't you uh, uh, tell us a bit about this uh, to our members so that they know what he's talking about too. Uh, hi, Anupam. Thank you for that introduction. As most of you know, my name is um, Abhilasha. I also go by Dhoop. And um, it's really sad that we're not getting a song or a jingle to introduce this voice note session. But um, for all of your sakes and for the sake of um, my promise that I would keep it fun. Anyhow. So um, today, I think it's important that um, we talk about Madhav Prasad and contextualize him in um, the, the mode that he's coming to us from, and uh, that is of semiotics, as well as uh, the Marxist tradition of thinking. Because um, I realize that unless and until you're either familiar with film studies or have taken a keen interest in um, a cultural analysis of media texts, it's bound to be a little dense. So um, we're going to talk about semiotics, or rather I'm going to do an introduction to semiotics a little later, because I realize that a lot of um, media analysis is contingent on you understanding the basics of deconstruction. And though I did do a little bit of a module for the writing caucus, it um, isn't something that is likely to ever happen on a circle-wide base. So um, just going to talk to you about that. So um, Madhav Prasad uses the semiotic approach to understand what cinema is all about. And if it's central to his understanding of film studies, it's also important to know if you want to comprehend the rest of this text. So he's an academic. He um, is the head of the cultural studies department at uh, the English and Foreign Languages University. Uh, but most importantly, as I said, he is a scholar in the Marxist tradition. So don't worry about um, some theorists being unaccessible because you might not have perhaps heard of them before. So if some ideas haven't made sense previously, we will break it down. I will particularly be dealing with the introduction. And um, as we uh, go ahead, Anupam will talk about the rest of the text and um, also cinepolitics. So um, the, the introduction is particularly important because a lot of people tend to skim that. And I realize that this is so because um, it's, it's a very technical introduction. So if you don't get it, it's very unlikely that you will understand the rest of the argument, though you will get a gist of it. So I will talk about the introduction in terms of certain concepts and certain themes that you should uh, keep track of. And you will also be able to trace these themes across the rest of the text. So um, uh, this is how we understand it, and I suppose the voice notes will be um, your spark notes. So no fear, Madhav Prasad. 
So anyhow, let's start talking about semiotics. Now, um, semiotics is basically the function of uh, science systems and its study. So um, it takes for granted that everybody um, shares a culture and based on this culture, there are certain signs that arise. And to be able to comprehend these signs is how you communicate with each other. So the first person to formally put this together was um, Ferdinand de Saussure, but he didn't intend to create a, theme, uh, a theory of semiotics. But um, what he did intend to do was um, talk about language. He was a linguist and he was more interested in the history of um, languages. And during a lecture he delivered, a bunch of his students just ended up making notes that they later, once um, he died, of course, compiled into um, what I'm loosely translating as notebook of the linguistic course that he taught. So through that, um, you find out that he basically said that um, there is um, a way in which signs operate. And this method of operation is a dyad. So there is a signifier and then there is the signified. So the signifier is the um, material existence of um, whatever you're attempting to communicate. And the signified is the allusion to a mental or a cultural concept. So for example, you see a dog and this dog is four-legged. It has a mouth, a head, a body and a tail. But you don't understand what the function of the dog is until and unless you have related it to a mental concept. And that is how the signifier and the signified work. So what he says is that there is um, there is a dog, but the idea of dogness is produced in your head based on your cultural understanding of what a dog is. This process enables communication because um, everybody shares a common understanding of what a dog is. It is a universal sign. Um, this is also grounded in culture because he uh, later on went on to um, give the example that um, if you were French, you wouldn't say dog, but you would say chien, and it still means the same thing. It produces the same image. So um, there's, of course, Saussure, and then we move on to this person called Charles Sanders first. Now, he worked on semiotics as well, and um, he opposed the dyad model by saying that um, the process of meaning making is um, not a dyad as much as it is a triad. So you have the representament, you have the relationship to an object, and this relationship entails an interpretant. So that means you see the object, there is a level of mental signification that happens. That is, um, there, is th there is a sign, there is a mental process, and then that mental process produces the meaning. This then later translates into an endless process of signification. So um, you, you have something becoming the signifier and then it'll, it'll still produce the, the relationship to the object and then it'll become the object and the, the, the interpretant. These signs, however, do not stand alone. And he says that um, they produce um, these phenomena called the firstness, the secondness and the thirdness, which also relates to the three steps that I just talked to you about. So the firstness is the feeling of being triggered. The secondness is the probing of that feeling of being triggered. And the thirdness is the coming together of the whole picture. And that is how um, meaning is shaped. So that is about semiotics. And then, of course, you have um, further traditions in um, semiotics and you have you have baths. And we talked about baths in January, so um, I don't need to really discuss that. 
by now you have a good enough understanding of um, semiotics to get a grip of what this is like and you can apply um, the reading of um, or, or the methodology of semiotics to the reading of cinema. And I hope this is useful going forward because um, a grounding in this will enable you to see where Madhav Prasad is coming from. So you use this across um, various media and yeah, that, that's about semiotics. Okay, so now about the core Madhav Prasad. This is um, going to be interesting because I personally find him um, a rather shaping influence to um, the way in which I have approached cultural studies. Um, he's also written about cultural studies. And in this particular piece, he traces the evolution of film theory and technology, because if you're thinking about film and if you're a film theorist or um, trying to read a film, the, the main foundation of this film itself is housed in the apparatus. And what he says right at the start is that um, neither the technology nor the apparatus that you use to make a film is neutral because it is coming from the West. And with that, it comes with its baggage and that baggage gets applied to this context. And it takes a lot of effort to be able to separate that context from, from the use that it's being put into in um, the Indian cultural context. So this is further illustrated by the fact that he says that there are still Eurocentric conceptions of what um, a correct usage of the camera apparatus is. That is, um, for instance, if you ever find yourself asking what is acceptable to film, you have a preconceived aesthetic or a notion of what it is that is worthy of being filmed. And then um, what kind of filming and framing practices make something a good film, for instance? Even if you don't want to think about film on a large scale, think about your Instagram feeds. Think about how you use camera apparatus and technology to um, produce a certain image, a digital image that furthers an idea or a narrative of who you are as an artist and a person. Because um, all of these ideas of what is aesthetic and what is a good film come to us from a Euro-American centric um, lens or perspective of what was considered good filming practices. And this is further grounded in the idea of realism, where what they believed was film is emblematic of culture because the film is an afterthought to what already existed in culture. So there is there is a culture that exists in um, the West and the film is a response to this culture because it emanates from that and therefore is a reflection of it. Because it reflects this cultural reality, it usually is unable to break away from what already is. And um, the way in which it positions uh, the viewer as well indicates an implication of the viewer into a larger text. That is, the viewer of a film text in the West is not separate from the film text. So you will locate yourself within the um, unraveling of the film or unraveling of the narrative. Realist texts become the focus of what a good film is, as I said, because um, the, there, there was a Eurocentric um, approved practice and still remains what most cultural critics remain obsessed with in the Indian context. And um, this particular form has become, um, I wouldn't say fetishized, but um, elevated rather, um, has become elevated to the point that popular cinema is dismissed as being folkish and therefore beneath realism. So there has been a bifurcation over here thanks to um, tradition and um, certain practices. 
and that has produced a split in the consciousness of what is considered uh, art house cinema and what is considered popular cinema. So um, this again um, is embedded in classism because right at the start, if you read uh, the introduction, Hollywood cinema did not have um, a large penetration in um, the Indian market. What did have penetration though is um, the, the Hindi film, the Bollywood film industry and um, many regional cinemas. So while the regional cinemas and the Hindi film evolved parallelly towards a certain kind of aesthetic, Hollywood did not have that much percolation, but the concepts that came with Hollywood and the concepts that came with the technology that was imported from Hollywood per percolated to a large extent and also shaped the consciousness of what is considered aesthetic and also what is considered cinema for the classes. But however, this also produces, or if you if you noticed um, what I was saying so far, if you talk about the popular film as rooted in folk traditions, and we're looking down upon folk and oral traditions, we're further reinforcing an orientalist gaze, as well as an endological perspective of looking at ourselves. This is a thing that a lot of critics have continued to do. And the only way that we can approach this right now is either deal with it or rebut it. And that is also uh, an argument that Madhav Prasad deals with um, at a later point in the text. This is why Indian cinema is considered to be a not yet cinema, because they see it as not yet being real. Now, um, Western cinema was, however, afflicted with um, the cinema being hand in glove with the capitalist institution, because um, as you will read when you go further into the political economy chapters as well, um, you will see that there were certain production houses and there were there were studios that made film. But um, in the Indian context, that did not happen. And this was um, due to the, the stopping of this kind of behavior from um, warring factions within the cinema industry, as well as um, black money interests and a whole bunch of other things that Anupam is going to talk to you about later. But India did not particularly have a problem with um, producing the progressive film. But that's also because India was not as deeply embedded into this capitalism context, which is why um, Indian cinema remains on the nexus between feudalism and capitalism. And this kind of attitude produces what he calls the feudal family romance, which is further visible in a film like Shole. I really hope all of you have watched Shole so you understand what I'm talking about. But if you haven't watched Shole, I'll discuss it at a later point when I'm talking about um, how the state derives legitimacy using cinema. Going back to the idea of um, technology inspiring aesthetic practices. Aesthetic practices, as I said, evolved differently because it realized that technology can be dislodged from the context that it has occupied in the West. So as and how um, Indian cinema put technology to use, like with Dada Saheb Palke, uh, what eventually ended up happening was he made a lot of mythical, um, I mean, a myth mythological silent films. So um, over here, there was already a cultural context within India that he was exploiting while um, making all of these films. Uh, it was the idea of the Orient, uh, um, the Oriental as being myths as well as mythology obsessed. So um, there was a new context that was created in cinema, in Indian cinema, that is. And... Um, this technology being used in this particular context also enabled it to be dislodged from whatever Western preconceived um, biases that it was imported with, though it never really got rid of that as I have previously addressed. So when this happened, technology, that is um, the, the still image camera, 
was used in ways where um, people would take photographs and then put that up and uh, paint over that. This also led to there being no idea of perspective in um, early Indian um, image making practices. This transfer also though came with the baggage of what is considered modern because India was considered to be peripheral and um, this import happened from the core. So what technically then happens is that um, tradition and modernity as Madhav Prasad mentions um, evolved parallelly. That is, um, it was no longer a linear progression where you have something as um, traditional and then you move further and that becomes modern. It was that there is an uncomfortable nexus between tradition and modernity. So you can imagine this as tradition, handshake, or rather uncomfortable handshake, modernity. And what he says later is that um, this nexus will continue until um, they reach a breaking point or a certain point at which one attempts to outdo the other. And he briefly hints at um, how Hindutva tends to do this. So for more information on that, I think you should just read the text. Now, cinemas across India, as I said, Indian cinema is not just Hindi cinema, but um, regional cinemas as well. All of these, um, many, all, all of these aesthetic practices evolved to share a common aesthetic um, that involved the darshanic gaze. That is the center framing where um, the person being framed on screen looks at the viewer as someone who is um, slightly above them, slightly inaccessible. And this comes from theater practices from the Parsi theaters in Bombay, where um, artists on stage were placed in a way that enabled them to be embodiments of messages. And these messages were um, conveyed to the audience by a full frontal facing. And there was a power dynamic over here, and it was always in favor of the artist either on stage or on camera because they were the ones conveying the message. So it was a relationship between the person speaking and the person being spoken to. And this is a departure from Western practices where the viewer was located within the text. Over here, the viewer is very clearly uh, demarcated from the text by uh, being located on the outside as the onlooker. Th those are the three fundamental um, aspects that I wanted to talk about. The Darshanik case, the location of the spectator, and this evolving from uh, theater practices of yore. And this ties in very um, interestingly with cinepolitics, where um, the fan, or rather the viewer, because of this power imbalance, is um, positioned as the fan, creating the fan club. But over time, if you've noticed, instead of um, large, larger than life cutouts of um, actors outside your single screen cinemas, you now have a fan being characterized as the consuming fan because that is how you show your devotion by um, indulging in capitalism, not by uh, feudalistic worship or feudalistic fan worship. But um, yeah, as, as one that is um, a consuming viewer, which feeds in further with um, the developmentalist trajectory that um, cinema envisioned for itself, because as Madhav Prasad's um, central thesis is, Cinema is a representation of state form, and the state also uses it to legitimize its schemes. As I said, I would discuss surely at a later point, and this is the later point. So if you remember that final scene, if you haven't watched, I'm sorry, I can't really help but give you spoilers for a film that's decades old. That that last scene with um, Thakur um, being in the position to actually kill Gabbar, 
does not kill Gabbar but hands him over to the cops is a legitimization of the feudal order because the state identifies the feudal patriarch as being a, an instrument in driving its own desires as opposed to directly sidelining the feudal patriarch and siding with an instrument of modernity that is the um, that is the police force over there so the police force negotiates with thakur by appealing to his morality to to let go of gabar and um, therefore the state gains control over the dacoit or um, the stand in for i don't think i'm allowed to say this because we'll get banned so moving on the larger implication over here is that um we're at that stage where um we're still at the feudalism nexus as i've said so um according to marx um the ideology of formal subsumption yes i need to talk about that so um according to marx there is an arc at which capitalism advances now first there is formal subsumption where you are still feudalistic but not yet completely capitalistic like you want to get there but you aren't entirely there and then there is of course full fledged capitalism that um alters the identity of the person to the extent that they no longer see themselves as human they have embodied and internalized the capitalist ideology to the extent that they are now an instrument that is walking talking everything capitalism so um what he says is that we're not yet there we are still at the um formal subsumption level so whatever we do is influenced by this nexus between feudalism and capitalism and that uncomfortable balance between like the two the larger implication of this argument is that culture does not operate independently of ideology and um, whatever cultural text that you produce within uh, the indian con- um, the indian context or any context honestly um is a reflection of what the larger um ideology is and there are many ways in which he's defined ideology um some of which is um marx then there's gramsci and then there's althusser but um in one line before anupam murders me for talking too much um marx says that ideology is real social relations inverted and there is a universalization of class interests and this leads to a hegemony which is what gramsci has also talked about in january and uh, if you've read those texts you know so um this um this hegemony though is social and althusser takes this argument a little further by saying that state apparatus leads to subject creation now he doesn't just talk about um how this operates on a macro level he gives you a a, a model of how this would operate in the way that you would witness it happening so what he says is that state apparatus and subject creation are interrelated and this is because state apparatus is not only the state um, is is not only apparatus that the state has direct control over it is also your school it is also your family because both of these instruments produce you to be a good citizen that is um, your family has expectations of you to fall within the hetero capitalist patriarchal model where um, marriage is monogamous where um, you have certain um obligations towards society you have certain obligations towards your family where that is the fundamental unit and um as engels and marx described previously um it is the way in which capitalism procreated and um it also produces a subject with the help of school because school technically produces all of those skills or induces all of those skills that you need to be a good worker which is why there are certain streams of education that are subsidized as opposed to others 
and certain streams of education that produce a kind of worker. So um, what this does is that the state apparatus presents class conflict as being resolved. And this is its biggest, biggest con. What he says is that there is um, the, the object or the subject is conscious of this induction, but it is normalized to the extent that um, the subject further perpetrates this ideology. This is what um, produces a culture in which the third world rather um, produces cinema that is always allegorical because this cinema is attempting to comprehend the state form. And that is what he says the function of culture in the third world is. So um, with that, I think um, Anupam would be best positioned to talk about um, the rest of the piece. Um, thank you. Thank you, Abhilasha. So I'm going to speak mainly about the first uh, four or five chapters because, of course, you know, holding the hand and like go, like telling you everything that is in the book, like defeats the whole purpose of you reading the book. Having said that, there are certain uh, fundamental ideas which uh, M. Madhav Prasad uh, has repeatedly articulated and articulated quite in detail, which are very important. So to repeat a lot of what Abhilasha has said, what are some of the important claims he's making in the introduction? And one of the claims he's making is that he wants to study the institution of cinema and, and he comes to the conclusion that it is one of the institutions where, wherein it's possible to struggle over the form of the state. Unlike Western cinema, where the state has already achieved hegemony and the cinema is more or less an attempt to perpetuate the hegemony, the Indian state is still not crystallized. Capitalism has still not completely won over feudalism. And neither is the Indian state like very, you know, directly trying or even indirectly trying to use cinema to achieve some kind of hegemony. He gives actually he tries to historicize that that there were attempts by a lot of people who thought of, you know, that once we are independent, the cinema would be some kind of modernizing, progressive, capitalist, democratizing force, which will help develop that kind of hegemony. But Nehru, for some reason, did not think of things that way. And uh, cinema was sort of ignored for a while. And also, he talks about the fact that, of course, you know, there was primitive capitalist financiers within the cinema world who were very opposed to, like, you know, standardization, proper capitalism, proper institutions and all, because those things would have diluted their control. So the world of Indian cinema is still a broken world, which reflects the broken characteristic, the broken class characteristic of the Indian state. And that level of hegemony, which the state has achieved in the West, which leads it to use uh, cinema as an hegemonizing tool that simply does not exist in India. So in a peripheral modernizing state like India, you still have cinema as a site of struggle in various forms of contest contestation over state form. That is very interesting, but it is also something which gives cinema, Indian cinema, a very broken capitalist character which leads to a very particular kind of script which he would talk about in chapter uh, in chapter one and two where he talks about the political economy of the Indian cinema and what 
sort of script it leads to. So, if the critical reading of Indian cinema is a, as a site of ideological production is also something where there is struggle going on, where there is uh, where there is contention going on, it is reproducing the sort of state India has and. Uh, and, and the work, the book basically is trying to explain the social basis of the coherence of in, the ideology of Indian cinema, or, ra or rather at times the incoherence of the ideology of Indian cinema. The, uh, Abhilasha talked a lot about uh, ideological state apparatuses. The thing about ISAs is that ISAs are not you know, designed monolithic methodological instruments from there is no chance of escaping. Rather, a lot of the time, these institutions and apparatuses which form the ideological backbone of the state, which form the means of production of consensus raising, consensus, raising, consensus building, these institutions sometimes, while very much state apparatuses are not formed by dictates of the state. Like the family is not formed because the state says, you know, the family needs to, uh, the family needs to be. They are often emergent property of an ideology reaching a particular degree of maturity. And because, um, and, and M. Madhav Prasad's analysis is that if you look very carefully at the Indian cinema world, and how it funds itself and the kind of scripts it, scripts it produces and the sort of things it is reproducing, it is very obvious that what is the what sort of ideological state apparatus it is. It is an ideological state apparatus of a state which is very much a state built on a capitalist class desperately trying to negotiate with the feudal class. So the example of Shole gave that example ties in with that. The, the movie world is a reflection of a wider struggle, a wider compromise, uh, which is going on in the Indian state. And hence, contrary to Hollywood, uh, where you know the story of a plot is a preeminent factor. Why is the story a preeminent factor? The story is a preeminent factor because capitalism has won, and hence movies are produced in Hollywood in a sort of an, not exactly, but sort of an assembly line production, a very order, ordered and methodological capitalist industry where everything has its proper place and everything is linear, serial mode of capitalism. Whereas in India, because, well, there is this primitive capitalism which is dominating the Indian movie industry, dominating because according to M. Madhav Prasad, it is reflecting the sort of state India has and sort of contributing to the sort of state India has and sort of reproducing itself. Hence, Bollywood movies are funded in a very patchwork manner. There is no organized capitalist, profit-driven, rational, you know, assembly line production. Rather, there are competing family, uh, like family linkages and shady sources of money and, you know, all sorts of uh, push and pull and also production of the various parts of the movie in a very haphazard, uh, simultaneous manner rather than serial manner done by various parts of the industry which are practically unconnected with each other. And hence, 
the script is not important in the indian movie in the sense it's in the west like am madhav prasad talks about like you know that there were a lot of times where indian movie producers as well as the indian state which has you know this developmentalist ideology in its head that we need to get to that position of mature capitalism and you know the movie producers were also like oh indian movies are trash because they are like basically song and dance stuff uh, they are like these proto feudal stuff we need these realistic movies the sort hollywood has we need movies where scripts are emphasized well why is not the script emphasized it's not because of some cultural problem it's not because the indian movie audience is stupid uh, it is because you have a very particular economy which is producing the sort of movies where scripts are not really that important and that particular economy exists because a particular relationship of capitalism uh, with the previous dominant mode of production feudalism exists in india so it's all very interesting the way m madhav prasad has uh, formulated it whether or not you agree with his formulation of indian capitalism the indian state and how it relates to pre capitalist modes of production he gives a very solid thesis about why the indian movie industry is the way it is right he uh, m madhav prasad talks about you know the previous attempts are trying to understand the movie industry and there were basically two attempts there was one attempt which was uh, essentially uh, trying to look at the economic aspect is in fact a lot of economists have written about the indian movie industry and the political economy of the indian movie industry paisa like where does the funds come from where where who makes the profit etc etc but they don't even try to attempt to you know look into the uh, superstructural aspect they don't try to even look into why certain kinds of movie scripts are made and why certain kinds of movies exist on the other hand there is the a uh, critical discourse of indian movies which is completely looking at ethnography which is looking at uh, you know uh, indology etc etc he is saying that this work the book he has written it is an it is an attempt to sort of not relegate culture to this you know mystical realm metra and actually trying to connect it to the political economy like he, he is critical of attempts like you know bad counters uh, to so there were at, attempts at countering the ethnographic indological look at movies like with people like uh, chidanand das gupta who were interested who were forced to reckon with the political reality of indian movies when you had people like ntr winning elections who were like movie actors and you had chidanand das gupta but their analysis of the culture was at a very surface level which basically boiled down to oh indian um, uh, films are stupid and the masses which want those films are stupid etc etc and they are like uh, you know th- like these very culturalist explanations of why people uh, why people w- like certain kind of movies and why people then w- and and uh, m madhav prasad says no that's not true it is not true that uh, a movies all movies are made in a particular manner fulfilling particular tropes because the indian masses are undeveloped or whatever he in fact he gives a lot of very strong arguments why the indian masses are not like that and why uh, progressive movies the reason progressive movies are not made the reason script based movies are not made the reason um 
a particular kind of political economy ha happens is due to very material factors. So from a materialist lens, this book is excellent to read. One of the chapters, which is hilarious to uh, and yet mind-blowing in its logic, is the chapter where it talks about why in Indian movies there was always this unwritten prohibition that kissing can't be shown on screen. It was always a bit contradictory because nobody actually wrote down that thing as a rule in the censor rules. And, you know, people used to ask that, why is this rule there? But the rule is not there. Like the rule is not officially there, but still everybody is following it. Also, another contradiction was that Indian movies have never shied at showing other kinds of lewdness, right? You have these things uh, which are essentially a very objectification of women on screen you have like these what are these called item numbers and all and you have all these sort of lewdness which is demonstrated so why in particular kissing is something which is not and he says that you know movie makers also parsed the whole kissing thing navigated it in three manners either they would mock the prohibition by like implying that a kiss happened by like blurring the screen basically saying that haha a kiss happened and we didn't break a rule which shows that we are like, uh, uh, you know, we are forced to follow these stupid rules, but we think they're stupid. And then there was another thing which was, you know, a very moralistic, conservative thing where the actors would themselves be like, oh, please don't kiss me. We are not married, etc., etc. Some kind of religious or cultural justification inside the movie script. And then there was a third thing, which is a very interesting thing, where... Um, it is very obvious to everybody that there is intimacy going on on the screen, but it's not being showed. It's not blurred. It's not like a fuck you to the censor. Rather, it's behind like flowers in a garden or behind a tree or something. And then the uh, actors come out and you know what has happened. And it's not really a middle finger to the censor. Everybody is very much aware of what's going on, but some reason like the actual act is not shown. And M. Madhav Prasad is a very interesting reason. And I'm not going to tell you what that interesting reason is. And that reason is actually connected to political economy. And it's like a hilarious link he makes, which, uh, which goes into a lot of things, which I'm not going to go into like capitalism, etc. You should read this bit. If, if at all anything makes you curious, it is the fact that what I just said is a very serious argument and not, not like some, you know, a cultural example he's making or something. So the book might look a bit heavy to read but uh, there is a reason the book is canon it is because it is making a very marxist argument looking at the the state apparatus that is the hindi film industry or as it is called bollywood and how it actually interacts and reproduces the indian state a very particular form of indian state which in a very particular form in like you know when the book was written and the thing is that when the book was written some time has passed so in the meeting tomorrow, what would be really interesting is for us to also talk about how things have changed. Has the changing class character of the Indian state has, you know, um, has the prevalent dominant ideology, which, which sort of fossilized after this book was written? How is that, you know, being helped by this state apparatus and how is it influencing this, the evolu further evolution of this state apparatus? On that note, a much smaller piece, this like 15 page piece like if you can read the 200 pages of the book you should definitely read these extra 15 pages it is about cinema politics and especially talks about um the the uh, the south indian 
film industry cinema in south india right and it talks about a very particular phenomenon which is the uh, there are these actors uh, very famous actors who have been either connected to a uh, political movement so you for uh, for example you have mgr who was connected with the uh, the dmk political party and then splits with the dmk political party and starts aia dmk and then wins against the dmk party and then you have actors like ntr who is not connected to a political party but ha- but has an immense popularity and is able to build enough political cloud to win elections and then you have other actors who while uh, had that kind of cloud do not convert it into uh, do not convert it into a sort of you know political power and of course you can compare these actors with uh, with hindi cinema actors like amit bachchan who also had significant political clout and managed to win an election right what is going on why uh, why do uh, why do people vote for these people and uh, there are like two reductive ways to think about this as was mentioned in the previous book you had janan dasgupta right who basically uh, looks at ntr's political rise and ascribes it to oh, the people are stupid and they don't understand movies and they just follow famous movie stars that's one way of looking at it which is extremely you know surface level then there is the other way of looking at it which a lot of people say that oh you know um, mgr he betrayed dmk dmk was a political party it used to make like propaganda movies for uh, political ideological movies and these movies made uh, mgr into the superstar it w- he was and then once he was a superstar and once he used the platform of dmk to gain all his followers he just like you know cut ties and betrayed the party and and uh, madhav prasad he's like this is also reductive this is reductive because it is very clear that no mgr had substantial political clout it was the dmk which needed mgr often and not the other way around and he like he talks about you know another way is reported to have said that you know just mgr's presence would get 50000 people or something like that so obviously it is not that these people who uh, who become movie stars and then powerful politicians they are like uh, you know abusing or manipulating some kind of existing political platform or some kind of you know um, some kind of subaltern desire etc etc in fact uh, in a lot of these cases these like and madhav prasad says that in a lot of these cases it's not even that the actor in real life is considered to be some kind of hero or rebel or something like that it is like nobody thinks that you know mgr was some kind of rebel or ntr was some kind of rebel in real life or actually and also nobody was stupid enough to think that these people are you know their film like the people like did not confuse them with their film avatars nobody thought they were like these uh, mythological characters or kings of some wonderful land going around so it's neither that people thought of them in some kind of revolutionary sense that oh you know uh, uh, you are representing me me the oppressed it was also not that oh you are some glamorous character in the movie so i will follow you so i am not going to like again read the whole piece out for you but m madhav prasad makes a very good hypothesis which is situated around linguistic politics and he's talking about modernity and how in its attempt to sort of 
develop India or modernize India or whatever, the Indian federal government, it has a very particular view towards linguistics and linguistic representation. And in a reaction to that view, there is linguistic nationalism, there is identity-based politics, right? And in that sense, the actors, they are not some kind of revolutionary figureheads around which people are gathering, or they are some kind of, uh, you know, uh, glamorous, uh, mystical figures around which people are gathering. It could very well be that the people gather around them uh, to negotiate the very material, the very real aspect of movie, wherein the movie itself is an alien uh, formation for them because of this developmentalist ideology, which is perlocating down to the movies. And hence, the actors are seen as inter, like as mediators who are our people, our images in their spaces, who are not just representatives in an alien world, but a representative in an alien screen, where the audience is intelligent enough to realize that, you know, it's not that these people are some kind of real life heroes or whatever. It is that even within the representation of the movie, the actor is considered that intermediary because you know you have within that movie scenes where a the subaltern uh, people are standing outside some zamindar's house and the cocky actor who is like the hero goes right in the the people watching that know that this person is just playing a part they're not really uh they're not really you know like that in real life being aware of that they're also aware of what the movie form represents and that the form is powerful and that the form is sh shaping ideology and that the form is alien to them in their construct in their so basically M. Madha Prasad says that yes there is an illusion at operation here but the illusion is not the illusion of rebellion uh, and using the actor as some real life representative the illusion is that that we are a uh, linguistic reality which is and that one is an alien linguistic representation or an alien representation even if it is in our language but it's on our screen and we need a, we need an intermediary to bridge that it's a very interesting theory and and it gives a very good argument about why cinepolitics in the south happen in a particular way good food for thoughts so i would hope that everybody reads this very small piece as well and uh, realizes that cinepolitics is not just about infusion of individual charisma into electoral politics or as some people have said you know actors uh, manipulating existing party slogans and party ideology and party platforms it is a distinct and a very material form of political engagement that has come out of this uh, linguistic defined states. So that is the argument M. Madhav Prasad is making and whether or not you agree or disagree with it, uh, it would be good to engage with it in tomorrow's meeting. So on that note, I hope everybody had a good time. I hope Abhilasha, you had a good time. Uh, uh, so one thing before we end the voice note, uh, 
everybody needs to sign the circle constitution which was uh, drafted last month through a very complicated and democratic <laughs> and headache borne process since so much effort was made to make the constitution and everybody needs to endorse it so please sign the constitution before deadline which is 7th of march so yeah goodbye goodbye